Rogues Gallery Uncovered Bad Behaviour in Period Costume A non-judgmental disrobing of the scandalous lives of history's greatest libertines, lotharios and complete bastards containing adult themes and a touch of colourful language The Electric Sex Bed It's Danger High Voltage with the 18th century's most tech-savvy sex expert Dr James Graham one thing that wasn't around so much in ages past were health and safety disclaimers, but as we live in a world where manufacturers of 2000 watt hot air paint stripping guns have to put not to be used for drying hair on the box, I suppose I'd better add this one. I always wonder who'd be stupid enough to do that, but it's better to be safe, etc, etc. So connecting your bed frame to the electric mains is very dangerous and should never be attempted in period costume or not. And while we're on the subject of keeping persons and feelings safe from harm, a gentle and regular reminder that the following tale is written in the present tense of the period in which it's set, and as such may contain attitudes and opinions of the protagonists and their times which would today be considered unacceptable. Believe it or not, I am not a grumpy 18th century gentleman hoping to put the spark back into his sex life, so those attitudes and opinions are obviously not mine. Edinburgh, 1792 Dr James Graham has buried himself up to the neck in soil for the good of his health. Earth bathing, as he's christened it, is a guaranteed method to reinvigorate and rejuvenate the body by immersing it in the very ground from which all life sprang and in doing so absorb its healing energies. In his mind's eye, Graham imagines therapeutic fields of grateful patience, row upon row of smiling heads poking up out of the loam like so many vivified turnips. Sadly, as far as he can see, from his albeit limited perspective, he's completely alone, gazing at the sky from the garden of his Edinburgh home with only a few lacklustre runner beans for company. The sky darkens and a flash of lightning briefly crackles across the horizon. As the first droplets of rain begin to fall upon his upturned face, Graham remembers when he was considered a scientific pioneer, despite having failed his medical degree. Ten years ago, he'd been a sensation, a sexual prophet no less, and the toast of fashionable London. Another bolt of lightning forks across his view. To Graham, this can only be God's way of reminding him that the element which made all of his success possible is one of nature's most primal forces, an energy that one day will dominate the world. Electricity. It was in America that Graham had his road to Damascus moment regarding the power of electrical applications. Until then, he'd been an unremarkable apothecary, living in Doncaster, dishing out mercury pills and mustard plasters. After four years of this, and overcome with a desire to better his circumstances, Graham informed his wife that they were leaving their Yorkshire home and relocating to London, where he intended to study more advanced medical theories. Just as Mrs Graham was adjusting to life in the capital, he then announced that they were crossing the Atlantic and moving to America, where, armed with his newfound medical knowledge, he claimed to be an eminent surgeon. 
With the only people in a position to contradict him thousands of miles away, Graham began touring the country, delivering lectures about his revolutionary and largely fictitious approach to treating conditions of the eye. Finally, the couple settled in Philadelphia, a city whose rooftops were spiked with long metal poles, which immediately captured Graham's attention. These poles, or lightning rods, were an invention of the pioneering scientist Benjamin Franklin, who'd been extolling the benefits and practical uses of electricity since the 1750s. His work had captured the imagination of many learned men, some of whom had spent the last 30 years trying to construct devices capable of generating this elusive energy, or at the very least, harness the natural power of an electrical storm. Graham was entranced, and the more he discovered about electricity, the more convinced he became that it could be used for medical, and in particular, sexual benefit. I was suddenly struck, he wrote, with the thought that the pleasure of the venereal act might be exalted or rendered more intense if performed under the glowing, accelerating and most genial influences of that heaven-born, all-animating element or principle, the electrical or concocted fire. The Grahams returned to England in 1774 and James established a practice in Bristol specialising in conditions affecting fertility. He recommended to most of his patients that they adhered to a diet rich in vegetables and practice more scrupulous personal hygiene. For both sexes, this meant thoroughly bathing their private parts, genitals and fundament, with very, very cold water, every morning and every night. <coughs> Gentlemen in particular could benefit from this icy regime, and Graham made it very clear that by immersing his lower parts into freezing water, an amorous fellow could prevent additional semen leaking out of his penis after intercourse by locking the cock, thus ensuring that he had plenty of sperm left for his next ejaculation. It would also, Graham claimed, have a reviving effect on the appearance of his testicles. He noted, Certain parts, which next morning after a laborious night, would be relaxed, lank and pendulous, like the two eyes of a dead sheep dangling in a wet empty calf's bladder. By the frequent and judicious use of the icy cold water, they would become like a couple of steel balls, of a pound apiece, enclosed in a firm purse of uncut Manchester velvet. Well, after reading that, what man of spirit wouldn't want to find out more? Graham promoted his services with vigour using pamphlets, posters and press advertising to inform the public that he provided effluvia, vapours and applications ethereal, magnetic or electric. The grandiosity of his claims, their risque subject matter and the fact that Graham erroneously said that he'd actually studied under Benjamin Franklin himself all helped to make him an increasingly well-known figure. The proceeds of his Bristol practice funded another fact-finding mission to Europe where Graham travelled around Holland, Germany and Russia. Back in England, he relocated his practice to the fashionable town of Bath, in the hope of attracting the wealthy and very health-conscious clientele who visited every year to avail themselves of its restorative waters. Graham gave his new patients the opportunity to sit in a special bath of his own invention, 
through which a mild electrical current was passed, enhancing the water's invigorating properties. With his mind firmly fixed upon the money to be made from using electricity to promote sexual fulfilment, Graham began work on a prototype electrical bed, theorising that engaging in Congress surrounded by a gentle field of electricity could greatly enhance sexual performance, pleasure and even aid fertility. He took a conventional iron bed frame and replaced the legs with glass pillars to insulate it from the floor. Then he passed an electrical charge through the frame using an ingenious arrangement of copper wiring. Volunteers to try out this pioneering piece of reproductive technology were surprisingly few, until a stout Dutch lady who hailed from Lancaster agreed to push forward the boundaries of science. For her, it was something of a last resort. She had been married for seven years and had yet to conceive of a child, her courses having stopped completely. To add to her woes, a seizure had robbed her of the power of speech and left her partially paralysed. She and her husband, a strong likely man, spent the night in the electrical bed and in the morning both enjoyed a freezing cold bath before the husband gave his wife a vigorous massage using all of his considerable strength. According to Graham, within two months not only was the woman with child, but she was also able to walk unaided. When Bath's other married couples heard of this, the more curious among them were eager to try it for themselves and found, according to Graham, that without exception, the pleasure it generated was not only guaranteed, but also much more intense than that in a spark-free environment. Interviewed by the Gentleman's Magazine, Graham eulogised his chaise d'amour. Wonderful, oftentimes, are the effect of holding venereal congress in situations where the passions are very highly excited, he told the interviewer. The influence of the electrical fire warms and invigorates the whole system, exciting and exalting the amorous ideas of both sexes, stimulating them to the enjoyment of love and greatly heightening and prolonging its sweet pleasures. As his fashionable reputation increased, Graham cultivated the support of a local celebrity. The author of The History of England from the Ascension of James I to the Revolution and the world's only female historian, Catherine Macaulay. A sickly woman in her late forties, Macaulay engaged Graham as her physician and under his care recovered her vitality in sufficient quantities to wed his younger brother, who was only 21 years old at the time. The ensuing scandal, while damaging to Macaulay's social standing, acted as a powerful advertisement for Graham's methods, and he soon found himself with as many interested female patients as men. But it was another influential woman whose support brought Graham to national attention. Socialite and fashion icon Georgina Cavendish, Duchess of Devonshire. Graham had met her mother, the philanthropist Georgina Spencer, during another of his European fact-finding missions this time to France. She asked what advice he'd give her famous daughter who was trying to conceive. Graham suggested that she regularly pour an entire flask of ice-cold champagne into her vagina. He added that if immediately after having sex she'd also lay upon her back with her feet above her head, the chances of successful conception would be even greater. Georgina, 
who was arguably responsible for an alarming trend among young English women to sport extremely tall hairstyles, not only followed Dr. Graham's advice, but also supported him with money and influence in what would be his greatest venture. It was 1779, and time for James Graham to bring his treatments and remarkable electrical devices to London, and he knew just the place. Adelphi Terrace was a recent building development in the fashionable heart of the city just off the Strand. The actor David Garrick lived there. Facing the north bank of the River Thames, it was made up of 11 four-storey townhouses, each with a double basement. Exterior stonework was decorated with elaborate carvings inspired by the palace of the Roman Emperor Diocletian. It was a location fit for a temple. A temple of health. London, 1781. You know, I blame the claret. A convivial night at Boodle's, and I'm playing just one more hand of whist, when that oaf, Geoffrey, bets me 12 guineas that I won't fuck Harriet on that Scottish charlatan's ridiculous electrical bed. Well, if I hadn't been so tipped, I'd have damned his impudence and gone home. But I didn't which is why I took my wife to Schomburg House on Pall Mall last week. The bloody woman was so pleased, she clapped her hands with joy. She's been begging me to let us try it out for months. I overheard her taking tea with Alice and Jane a few days before, and one of them said that it was the most invigorating night that she'd ever spent, and the other claimed that it had cured her husband's gout. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I don't need some parlour trickery to keep my pecker up, but I thought if it's good enough for Charles James Fox, the Duke of Richmond, John Wilkes, and His Highness the Prince of Wales, well, it's certainly good enough for me. So we arrive by carriage, and of course, Harriet pulls her veil across her face so she won't be recognised. Why so incog? I asked her. Elizabeth Armstead and Mary Robinson don't mind people knowing that they worship at the Temple of Hymen, so why should you? Because one is a whore and the other's reputation is falling lower by the day, was her reply. I was all for getting straight on the damn contraption and lifting her skirts the minute we arrived. But first, we had to sit through a lecture on earth bathing. You know, they say this fellow Graham is tall and imposing, but I couldn't tell, as he gave his presentation buried up to his neck in a bucket full of mud. To hear him talk, though, you'd think that he had a cure for every ailment known to man. James Graham, conqueror under God of disease. That's how he introduced himself. Bloody idiot was sticking out of the ground like a fence post, so I whispered to Harriet that I agreed with Walpole, who called him the Prince of Quacks. She gave me one of her looks. Anyway, after some nonsense about dipping your prick into freezing cold water, we finally adjourned to the famous Celestial Bed. Of course, I had to tell Graham that we wanted to use the bed in order to conceive, rather than simply for pleasure, or he might not have let us use it. Although, considering how much I paid for the privilege, I should hope he wouldn't have minded. Fifty bloody pounds it cost me to spend one night on that thing. That would buy me a carriage and pay for a groom for a whole blasted year. Graham must be making an absolute fortune, I said. But if he really believes this tomfoolery, then... Well, he's even more of a buffoon than he looks. So anyway, we change into our night attire and climb into bed. Harriet was already more excited than I'd seen her in years, and they hadn't even turned the bloody current on. 
The bed itself is about 12 feet by 9 and stands on 40 glass pillars. They tell me that's to keep it insulated from the floor. It's covered by a huge dome, on top of which were representations of Cupid and Psyche, one of them holding an electrical crown, the other a blazing torch. Don't ask me why. The first thing I noticed when I got into bed, though, was the smell of perfume wafting down from the inside of the dome. There were bunches of fresh flowers hanging down. I could have sworn there was also some ether mixed in with it as well. I certainly felt lightheaded. And we weren't entirely alone either. The inside of the dome also held a cage full of turtle doves cooing all over the place, and above the head of the bed was a disturbing, although technically very impressive, display of clockwork automata. I was so intrigued watching these mechanical brides and bridegrooms being led through a replica of the temple's doors by a trio of mechanical nymphs that I almost forgot why I was there in the first place. Looking down, however, I was soon reminded, as emblazoned on the bedhead itself were the words, be fruitful, multiply and replenish the earth. The letters had been formed of some sort of conductive material, so they crackled and sparkled with energy. Anyway, when we finally began the act of love, Harriet seemed almost instantly transported, and I have to say, I didn't mind the gentle tingling of the electrical current one bit, even if it did begin to make our hair stand on end. What did concern me, though, was when I looked beyond my wife's shoulder, as she brazenly straddled me, to see my own face reflected in a series of mirrors lining the inside of the dome's canopy. And if glimpsing my own spiky-haired visage wasn't distracting enough, every time we moved, the most appalling noise would bellow from organ pipes underneath the bed. I think they were supposed to be celestial sounds, matching our movements and providing an acoustic companion to our passionate coupling. But to me, it sounded like nothing more than an ox stuck in a five-bar gate. The bed frame could be tilted to support a couple's preferred position, which I found to be a most ingenious contrivance, although the mattress was stuffed with a mixture of oats, spices and hair from the tails of English stallions, which, while soft, made me sneeze like the very devil. It wasn't long, however, before I was behaving like an English stallion myself pumping and sneezing while trying to close my ears to the deafening organ music and my eyes to the reflection of my clown-like face. Harriet had wrapped her legs around me and started quoting bloody poetry or something when I started to feel a series of regular painful jolts all over my person. These were no doubt from the 1,500 pounds of magnets that had also been stuffed into the mattress to aid with virility and conception. Graham's pamphlet had said that the magnets were there to provide irresistibly powerful tides of the magnetic effluvium, creating that sweet, undulating, titulating, vibratory, soul-dissolving, marrow-melting motion which is at once so necessary and so pleasing. As our motions became more frenzied, the current, provided by two or more hard-working servants who were frantically spinning the electricity-generating cylinder in an adjoining room, seemed to grow in its ferocity. Harriet's eyes rolled right the way back in her head and she cried out to Jesus, which she'd never done before. I, however, felt as if I was trapped in a cacophonous reflective hell, enduring the striking of my body with tiny hammers while being simultaneously dipped in fire. 
After what seemed like an eternity, I finally discharged adequately and with much relief. <sighs> On the way out, some trollop in a see-through handkerchief tried to sell me some ethereal balsam for 15 shillings. I told her to fuck off. Edinburgh, 1792. The rain is pouring now, and James Graham calls to his wife to come and help dig him out. Within a few years of his success, the tide of popular appreciation had turned, and fashion had inevitably moved on. The outfitting of his temples had caused him to run up huge debts, eventually rendering him nearly bankrupt. A very public argument with another fellow who made bold claims, Gustavus Catafelto, the self-styled greatest natural philosopher since Isaac Newton, had resulted in merciless public mockery. Catafalto was another eccentric, who always conducted his lectures with a black cat by his side, claimed to have flown a hot air balloon before the Montgolfier brothers, and adopted the catchphrase, Wonders, wonders, wonders. Graham became regarded by the very people who once hailed him as a genius, as a sordid quack and embarrassing charlatan. Even lecturing about earth bathing and his latest theories concerning the beneficial effects of fasting couldn't halt his decline and he'd been forced to leave London in disgrace. As the soil falls from his body, however, Graham smiles. For in the midst of all this defeat, he's finally found God and become born again. He's founded his own religion with himself as its sole member and taken to wearing clothes made from pieces of freshly cut turf so he can enjoy the benefits of earth energy wherever he is. With the good Lord in his heart and his time spent buried or fasting, a return to success is all but assured. And on top of that, he has plenty of time, as his health regime means, by his estimation, he could live for another century or more. Who needs electricity? Graham's optimism was a little bit misplaced, as despite his high hopes for the power of Earth energy, he died two years later at the age of only 49. His decline is a salutary lesson into the fickle nature of popular fads, and how celebrities, once most ardent supporters, will quickly turn against them once the tide of fashion has turned in another direction. It's interesting to note that the famous mistress of Horatio Nelson, Emma Hamilton, was rumoured to have once worked at Graham's Pall Mall Temple as a young woman named Emma Hart. A stunning beauty, she was said to have played the part of Vestina, the goddess of health, dressed only in diaphanous robes. She possibly also sold a few medicinal extras to the temple's well-heeled clientele. When looming bankruptcy forced Graham out of London, he relocated to Edinburgh and then tried to set up another temple of health on Southbridge. Unfortunately, unlike Anything Goes London, the Scottish magistrates took a very dim view of anything even remotely hinting at sex, let alone electrically shocking people into having better orgasms. They took him to court, and as they were also the ones who decided if he was guilty or not, it came as no surprise when they fined him £20 and then sent him to prison. Earthbathing was his attempt to see if he could manufacture lightning in a bottle twice. As he shuffled around town, an increasingly pitiful figure with his mental health clearly in disarray, 
it was obvious that this was not the case. It was the extreme fasting, something else not to be recommended, that it appears finally killed him, as his sickly body simply couldn't cope with all the demands being put upon it. He was rich and famous for a bit though, so some might say that it was well worth it, and he did give a lot of very wealthy people a naughty night out with a difference. And who doesn't like one of those? His electric bed was even immortalised in verse, with the poet William Mason writing, Thither haste with knocking knees, genial and prolific fires, shall wake your pulse to new desires, though your embers should be dead, stretch on his celestial bed, soon you'll feel the vital flame rushing through your icy frame. Graham's lasting legacy, however, was as a pioneer of sex therapy. He was way ahead of his time and a whole industry and its beneficiaries have much to thank him for. Next time on Rogues Gallery Uncovered. Having it large. Unlimited funds, constant boredom and a real love of port. Horse racing, hunting and hiccups. The short and very colourful life of a Regency gentleman who couldn't give a fuck. Mad Jack Mitten. Disreputable thanks are once again in order. Rogue's Gallery Uncovered continues to go from strength to strength thanks to you, and I'm effusively grateful. There'll very soon be some special naughty perks for those who support the podcast on Patreon and an online shop on my website where you can buy roguish apparel and other disreputable essentials. I'm wearing one of the samples as we speak and am drinking my claret out of another. A little bit of fine-tuning and all should be up and running by the end of the month. Now, obviously, I'll be shouting about this from the rooftops once everything's in place, but if you want to be kept in the loop about this and other roguish developments, may I respectfully suggest that you visit roguesgalleryuncovered.com and sign up to my monthly newsletter. You'll get all the latest news, download links to podcast episodes that you might have missed, a rogue of the month, and other musings and miscellany. Anyway, that's all for now. Stay roguish, and I'll see you yesterday. <laughs>